This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Hi, this is Eric Paglia in Stockholm, Sweden. Time now for episode 48 of the Polar Geopolitics podcast. And it's actually the first in a while that we do an episode devoted to Antarctica. We've been doing a lot of work on the Arctic lately, especially in the context of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the impact on Arctic governance. So now it's time to turn and look southward once again. Long overdue. And actually, it's the first time that I've done a live interview in the studio, having a guest in the studio. A lot of the interviews have been done over the phone as of late, and we're very Happy to welcome to the studio somebody that I met about 15 years ago, interviewed him for another podcast on uh, environmental issues. We're talking about the Baltic Sea at that point. This time we're going to be talking about the Southern Ocean, uh, Antarctica and Camelar, the um, Commission for the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources. And joining me here in the studio is the former chairman of that organization. Up until just a few weeks ago, it's Dr. Jakob Granit. Director General of the Swedish Agency for Marine and Water Management. Sweden was the uh, chair of Camelar as uh, as the rotating chair between 2020 and 2022. And as that, Jakob, you were the chairman of the organization. So first of all, thank you very much for joining us here in the studio. You're based in Gothenburg, the second city here in Sweden, but up in Stockholm today. Very happy that you took the time to uh, visit us here in the studio to talk about Antarctica and Camelar. Thanks for having me. And we have a lot of ground to cover here today on a number of different issues, both of geopolitical um, aspects, but also um, science and conservation and rational use and a lot of the a lot of the things that are part of the whole Camelar governance structure. Perhaps first uh, we can talk about the Swedish chairmanship, which, uh, as I mentioned, was between 2020 and 2022. Maybe that was bad timing, uh, just bad luck, but I guess somebody had to chair Camelar during those pandemic years. Uh, very early on in the pandemic, uh, we, uh, we spoke with Alan Hemmings, an Antarctic expert from New Zealand who was very concerned about how the pandemic and the, the impossibility of people being able to meet in person would affect particularly Antarctic governance. So now, a couple of years later, we can actually look back and discuss how it actually turned out and how this affected your work as the chairman and Sweden's time as chair of Camelar. Yes, thanks, uh, Eric. Well, we took over after Spain, and Spain had a previous um, chairmanship period. And the sort of the first year of the pandemic was actually during the Spanish uh, chairmanship. So that was the first time uh, Camelara managed to set up uh, a full full virtual meeting. And there was a lot of constraints, of course, in that meeting to 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 get it going and to have a, a full participation uh, by the different members. And the concern, of course, about the quality of engagement as well. So under Spanish uh, chairmanship, they, they really managed to pull it through. Uh, but of course, uh, again, not much progress on issues beyond sort of the, the standard fisheries management uh, topics that are, that are very important to cover in each meeting. So uh, when we took over, uh, there was um, major concerns about between... Many members, uh, some members in, in particular, that uh, the focus should be on really the operational issues like the budget and uh, the financial issues and roll over the existing conservation measures and not go into detail into topics like uh, marine protection or climate change or how that will impact the, the management of the convention. 
So, but then there was another uh, uh, group of, of members who really wanted to go deep into the topic of, of, of uh, especially marine protected areas and how that could be developed further. So when when I took over as the Swedish chair, we had first of all to to manage the different uh, expectations of a meeting, uh, first of all, uh, and then secondly also to see how to carry it out, uh, you know, in, in practice. What type of meeting can you have, and, and new software being developed, and translation, and uh, captioned texting, and so forth. So, but but we managed to get all of that going, and 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 the debate was then on on the actual agenda. A large, uh, you know, a lot of work is around the agenda setting for the annual meetings, but also the preparatory meetings, the, the subgroups that meet on you know conservation, on fishing, and so forth. So, um, once we had uh, managed to agree an agenda, then the question was, you know, could we meet uh, physically or only virtually? And uh, at that point, uh, uh, the, there was some ease in the, in the pandemic. This was in 2021. So there was, you know, it was possible, in fact, to meet uh, in person at that stage. Uh, but then there was a big debate about could countries travel or not travel. And uh, at the end, we, as a chair, had to call a physical meeting just to ensure that we had a full agenda, you know, knowing that uh, it might not you know, be possible to do it. And at the end, uh, we, we managed it as a, as, a, as a full physical meeting. But uh, when we really opened the, the conference at the end, we had to switch to, to, to a virtual meeting by consensus because everything is by consensus. So that meant that the first year, it was uh, quite a good discussion on, on also marine protected area issues and topics of the, conserv- the important conservation measures on fishing, krill and toothfish in particular, and ice mackerel and other important commercial species. So we managed to pull it off, uh, but, you know, there are shorter meetings. There are only four hours and uh, big issues with time constraints. Some members have to be up in the middle of the night and delegations. So it's not the best thing to do, obviously. But it was important to to ensure that the operational key decisions of Camelar is maintained. The controlled fishing, the IUU issues the, um, related to illegal and unregulated fishing, these are you know standard things that are gone through in detail and IUU lists are made, detailed agreements and, and, and on how much can be fished and where and so forth. So all of that was was managed during the first year. So in these two years of the Swedish chairmanship, uh, you had two of these these annual meetings, of course, uh, 2021, and then the one in 2022, which was just a couple of weeks ago, one month ago. Uh, we'll talk more about that, probably a lot more about that later on in the uh, in the episode here. A couple of things you mentioned there are very interesting, uh, the idea of consensus and how all countries have to agree on, on these big decisions that are made in Camelar. That can, of course, be a, a sticking point, uh, as, uh, as uh, many have uh, observed and uh, criticized to some extent. We'll get to that as well in a few minutes. Minutes, uh, but also the agenda. You mentioned the agenda. Did, was that something that Sweden develops the agenda, or is that something you do together with the Secretariat of Camelar, or is in, in, amongst all the, the the parties to Camelar, or how is that how is that done? Who mm. sets the agenda during these chairmanship periods? Well, there are some some standard procedures for the agenda setting, and the chair is responsible for that together with the with the Secretariat, and then. Uh, members can add items to the agenda, so the idea is to have it, you know, as comprehensive as possible. And uh, the chair is also responsible for the order of where when items are being discussed. 
So we did actually a lot of work on that to, to get a, a better flow of the meetings during during the Swedish chairmanship. So in the second meeting then, we, we could design a full agenda and we could have it in person in Hobart, which was very important to really allow for, for a full discussion. But at that time, as we know, 24th of February, the invasion of Ukraine took place, so which made everything very, very you know difficult to, to move forward. I mean... You have two two members, two key members of the convention in full-scale conflict. So how to deal with that was very difficult. And I, I remember waking up on the morning of the 24th knowing that this was uh, about to happen. And we had a head of delegation meeting at that same morning to discuss uh, the agenda, actually, and how to carry out the meeting in person or virtually. Uh, so that was, uh, you know, uh, difficult times. Uh, because on the one hand, you want to ensure that multilateralism works and that we can keep on uh, on the you know the management of this very very important area. This is ten percent of the of the global oceans that, that are covered by Camelarm. And on the other hand, you also members also want to of course to mark that this is not acceptable. Uh, the invasion is not acceptable. So this is very very early days. But uh, in spite of of that um, situation. Uh, we managed to put together this this full agenda for the meeting that was just recently completed, allowing you know very solid discussions on on climate change, um, of course on the fisheries issues, and and uh, going deep into developing better plans for krill management and so forth. So that type of discussion happens, but of course, very very strong statements by all the members. Uh, on the invasion and what that means for, for an organization like Camelar, uh, but also in general, of course, the suffering of the, of the Ukrainian people. Uh, and Ukraine being in the meeting makes it, all, of course, very, very difficult. This makes for a very um, interesting distinction between um, Arctic and Antarctic governance mm. uh, in the Arctic. Uh, many of our latest episodes of this podcast have been devoted to how to um, deal with the situation. Uh, the Arctic is very much incomplete without Russia, but at the same time, engaging with Russia seems uh, seems wrong to a lot of uh, participants. Others uh, actually don't feel that way. Others feel that the Arctic should be, Arctic Council and other bodies should be a, a way to at least maintain these these lines of communication, these diplomatic channels and such. But in, in Antarctica, this is not really an option, right? Russia is a, is a party to this uh, to this uh, Antarctic Treaty System, uh, the Antarctic Convention, and a member of Camelar. And you cannot freeze them out. So you have to engage with them. So it creates a very interesting um, lens to see Russia's role in governance globally, but particularly in the polar areas. How did that go about it? After condemning the invasion, did other parties, other diplomats, other uh, representatives discuss with Russia? Did they negotiate with Russia? Did they criticize Russia? I mean, how, how did that go about? And in particular, was there any interaction between Ukrainian representatives and Russian representatives? Yes. Well, there's this distinction, of course, between the Arctic governance, as you, as you noted, and, and Antarctic governance. And in the Arctic Council, it's a council. It's not a decision-making body. It's, it's a council. It provides advice and they do projects and they have also then agreed bilaterally on, on fisheries management, for example. In Camelar uh, and in the Antarctic Treaty System, you know, it's a governance regime that's been developed over 60 years during the height of the Cold War uh, with, at that time, Soviet Union as, as a key player. 
And uh, as we know, the, this topic at that time was about, you know, demilitarization and uh, issues about mining and very, very difficult issues and to maintain uh, the area under, some, under a you know, a common management regime rather than, you know, sovereign rights on the, of, of the territory. So uh, Russia, the, the later Russia and, and the other Soviet states like Ukraine, uh, they have a very high stake and they are full members of the convention with decision making which makes that, uh, you know, if you want to move issues uh, forward in these types of discussions, you have to have every, every member on board. I mean, this is very strictly regulated in, in the convention texts. So in this particular meeting, you know, you always have head of delegations meeting in, in advance of the actual meeting to discuss issues of, you know, next chairmanship, for example, and, and how is that going to happen? It's all rules-based, right? But you never know if a rule is blocked or not, and how it could be blocked. And there are always surprises, obviously, in these, <laughs> these circumstances to deal with, uh, because you can't, you can't plan for everything, even if you try to. But um, a major concern, of course, uh, on how Ukraine would react, and Russia would react, and, and other members. And, but I think at the end, my sense is that uh, the members... Ukraine and Russia and, and all members value this partnership uh, very much, even though they still, of course, object national interest, of course, in, in these. And it's not only about Russia, it's about other members with very strong fishing interests. And it's, so it's, it's not simply an issue between, you know, of Russia and China and, and the West. All these members have different interests, which clearly are spelt out in these type of, of settings. But of course, in this meeting, the invasion of Ukraine was the biggest thing. But you also had a, a topic between uh, fishing rights uh, between Argentina and, and UK that also played out even from the 40th meeting. So a lot of issues at the same time. But I, you know, after countries make their statements and they clearly proclaim that the, the dissatisfaction or the that rules-based orders are not followed and so forth, they quite rapidly, is my sense, uh, turn back to the topics at hand, which is how do we manage this together, this regime? That's not the same thing as saying that all the outcomes are positive for all the members. They are not. But, you know, you have to reach a consensus. So in spite of the, these very, very strong tensions this year, in spite of the, of the pandemic um, progress in terms of regulating fishing and advancing the agenda on conservation was achieved. It's, it's my sense. I saw from some of your press releases and things on the website, the Camelar website, that there was a bit of an up, upbeat perspective on the result of this, this latest meeting in Hobart, which concluded November 4th, just about a month ago. And I've read others, though, that, are, that have been quite critical of the continued lack of progress on some particular issues, some of these, these headline issues, uh, particularly the, um, the marine protected areas uh, in the, the Weddell Sea and East Antarctica and the Antarctic Peninsula, once again being vetoed by Russia and China. Um, perhaps talk a bit about that. How is there – is that – part of the pun, but is that dead in the water? Is that, is that, a, is that an issue that is no – is there any way to make progress on those issues or is it just this just fundamental sticking point that uh, can't be resolved because of the, the, the consensus, the ability for countries, even one country, to, to veto an otherwise popular proposition? Right. What I think one needs to understand is that uh, the marine 
water surrounding Antarctica, which is the formal uh, expression of the Southern Oceans by the members, uh, that there is a, a spatial management regime in place. So all the waters are, are have fishing regulations. You have vulnerable ecosystems under protection. Uh, you have uh, all the different types of inspections and controls and so forth. So, And coupling that with the work under the environmental protocol of the Antarctic Treaty System as well, which covers a lot of uh, uh, sensitive marine uh, coastal areas and, and other areas, the ASPAS and the ASPAS around the, uh, along the coastlines. There's actually quite a, a nice coverage of, of the region in terms of protection and conservation. Now, that should be deepened, of course, because climate change is happening and we are learning more. And I think that's a key issue. The knowledge and the science uh, on these very, very important areas of the world, we are deepening that and we are learning more. So we understand we have to have a different regime protecting it. And so the uh, agreement to have a, a network of, of marine protected areas in place by 2012 was a very, very ambitious scheme. And uh, also at that time, the conservation measure managing that, the 91 and 4, is not very detailed. So there are a lot of issues up for interpretation. So the key issue here uh, is that, uh, uh, yes, you on the one hand have that agreement to have this uh, network of protected areas, what exactly that is is not properly defined yet. Uh, what is a, a full network? Also, how to achieve that? How should a research and monitoring plan, for example, look like? What type of activities can you allow for in these areas? These are all uh, still being discussed. And, and my sense is that if you really want to have a major progress on this, you have to get all the members on board for a full understanding. Yes, the objective was set by 2012. It's, it hasn't been achieved. Uh, members have, uh, have different um, views on that now. Uh, China, for example, are building up their, their krilling fishing uh, capacity, which is important for, for them, as they argue, uh, for a food security perspective. Uh, it, you know, a lot of that krill goes to, for fish farms and for fish fodder. So that's also something that one needs to understand. And, you know, India and others are, are, are also being part of that. And if you don't manage those expectations in a, in a process that everybody is behind, you will not achieve this. So right now, the, one of the key outcomes, if we talk about that, from the 41st meeting was to have an extraordinary meeting just devoted simply to that. Marine spatial management and the use of marine protected areas as a tool to achieve protection and conservation. I mean, an marine protected area in itself is not the key outcome. The outcome is the conservation part of it. So, uh, yes, MPA are a tool, but there are also other tools that one can use. So that whole quality of, of, of conservation and protection is something that needs to be discussed and understood, I think, better by all the members. That's very interesting. I guess you're alluding to this, this meeting coming up in 2023 in mm -hmm. Chile. On yeah. Is that, um, I guess now you're, you've passed the chair on to Ukraine. I guess that'll be under the Ukrainian um, chairmanship of, of Kimmler. But uh, just in terms of these interpretations, you mentioned it's a very important aspect of this. It's interpretations of rather loose um, definitions. When it comes to krill fisheries and krill being sort of the, the basis of the food chain in the, in the Antarctic marine environment, 
Uh, for example, Norway is uh, by far the largest uh, krill fishing nation. I think yes. they have 65% of the, the krill fishery right now. That. How can they come to a very different conclusion on things like marine protected areas compared to China and Russia if krill access to krill is the is the objective for different national interests? Well, I'm not certain they have come to a different conclusion. Uh, I think in the top, uh, you know, when it comes to, to Norway, they also understand that in many of these marine protected areas, you actually can have fishing. You have different types of fishing. Sometimes it's called research fishing. Uh, that's the same thing globally. By the way, it's not only for Camelar. And that the type of research fishing is not something that's been properly defined as well. That's actually a point that Russia typically makes that, you know, have we have even defined what research fishing is? You know, so I think on that one, they actually have a point. So uh, in many of these marine protected areas, you have different types of activities going on. I mean, that's the same globally. So uh, a marine protected area doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean you cannot have fishing. I mean, in Swedish waters, we also have fishing, some fishing. It depends what type of fishing. You know, bottom trawling, for example, that's uh, uh, prohibited. In you know, in all, in many parts of, I think actually in all parts of the of the convention area, so it, it's the type of activity is important to understand. So I think in the, in the case of countries like Norway and so forth, to understand you can have a marine protected area, but you can also have different types of fishing going on. What's happening now, which is very important, has been we've been working on that for the past 10, 15 years, is to to see where do you fish that krill, you know, in what area, so do you avoid the areas where you have a lot of other marine predators, uh, you know, being active. So you increase the granularity of the fishing areas you can fish in. And uh, that's something being debated now in the new conservation measure, which I think is very, very important. And that process, we almost came to a conclusion on that, uh, by the way, in this meeting. Uh, China at the end uh, uh, did object to that one because they didn't have you know, the argument that they didn't have all the experts there and they perhaps didn't fully understand what it means what he meant. So in, in essence, and, and Russia was supportive of that and so forth. So there are many movements going on, you know, within that discussion beyond saying, yes, we did not have a, the East Antarctica uh, MPA in place or the Weddell Sea or the, or the peninsula in place, but fantastic work on, on those different, uh, you know, management tools, uh, the quality of them were presented in the meeting and, you know, more or less agreement, but there are these final steps of understanding that is still necessary. So I hope that the meeting in that is now planned for in, in Chile really will, will take a step forward on that. Might not be full agreement yet, but it's about the understanding. And on the subject of understanding, um, science, of course, plays a crucial role. It's, it's often lifted up. It's always, I would say, lifted up uh, in these contexts uh, when you're dealing with whether it's uh, marine protected areas or rational use or conservation. Every aspect of governance in uh, Antarctica is um, somehow connected to the science. But science is maybe not as neutral as it's presented to be. It's often used in support of some national interest. From your experience, uh, Jakob, what is the role of science in Antarctic governance? Mm. Well, ecosystem-based management, the idea behind that is that it's science-driven, but also that it's consultative. I mean, so the whole idea is that you have to consult in order to have this full understanding. When it comes to science in the, in, you know, managed by Camelar, I think my view is that it's, it's very much focused on, on fisheries management still. 
So there are, you know, superb stock assessments of the different key species and going on. Some members might use some of them to object that they don't agree to those stock assessments, which can then prohibit, you know, a conservation measure on some fishing to take place, which, which happen every year. Uh, that could be used from a, from a political sense. But I think the what we have also seen that the scientific committee of, or as I said, the scientific committee of Camelot is very much focused on fisheries management. But you also have the, the SCAR, the broader uh, International Science Council's contribution to to Antarctic research, uh, and they do a lot of work on, for example, uh, climate change, which is also taking into the to the commission. But there's been a, a, a big debate about you know science being politicized in in Camelot which I think is probably similar in many other parts of the world. And um, even though um, many members expressed that this year they thought it's been a little bit better, uh, but at the end I think the, the, uh, uh, the this type of science that we're doing in, this, in, in these areas very far from, <laughs> very far away on, on the earth, it's, 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 they're all investments by individual members, right? So there's no, there's no common scientific body. It's all national contributions, so perhaps the protocols and the routines and the standards for that should be in the future better managed and better agreements on that. I think, you know, uh, the scientific research plan that's being developed also needs to, to be better properly uh, addressed or assessed perhaps. So, of course, there's a lot of work to do on that, especially when it comes to ecosystem management and climate change. But when it comes to fishing and fisheries, I think it's probably, you know, as good as it can get at this stage. And the other aspect of science that I wanted to bring up uh, is this idea of science diplomacy, that science can be a way to build bridges between countries that are maybe not getting along so well in other aspects. Do you see any evidence of that, of science diplomacy being at work in Camelar, where some countries, that, whether it's the UK and Argentina, with scientists cooperating, or certain bridges perhaps not bridgeable through some sort of scientific peer-to-peer ways of interacting that might foster better relations between their, their home countries? Well, there, I think there are, there are a lot of fantastic examples of, of uh, collaboration in science, you know, on, on the terrestrial side of it, in, within the Antarctic Treaty System, as well as within Camelar and, and the 40th year anniversary book that was just published, which is, came out on the website just yesterday, I think, uh, it's, it's well worth reading because uh, science is, you know, a uh, lot of good examples of the scientific work uh, that members have taken undertaking nationally and but also together in you know in different type of consortia and all, for example the the as i said the stock assessments are done in collaboration the work on the marine protected areas is done in collaboration chile and argentina and with support of many many other members have done all the scientific work to underpin the you know future conservation measures on the East Antarctica. Same for the Weddell Sea and the East Antarctica. So scientific collaboration is very, very strong. And also, you know, the, the perhaps the last example or most recent example is the Ukrainian scientific research vessel that they just procured from from UK the year before uh, the war started. That vessel... Uh, left Odessa for, for their first scientific uh, mission and they were caught, of course, <laughs> in the region 
at the time of the war and they couldn't return. But immediately Argentina, Uruguay and South Africa supported uh, them with both and UK as well with support uh, to the scientists and also with a port for, for the ship now during these difficult times. So there are, there are strong scientific networks which I think are, are amazing to see how, 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 how well that works. And and I should also not forget that the, the, the annual meeting is just the top of the iceberg. There are a lot of five, six subgroups that are working on science together during the year. So scientific collaboration is strong. Of course, it could be more. It could be even better, perhaps. But, but the idea of science being at the heart of decision making is there, absolutely. And in terms of a geopolitics, how, I mean, we, we've alluded to this uh, several times now so far, but from your, well, very uh, senior position in Kamalar as the chair for two years, you must have all kinds of insights into how these countries interact in the context of Kamalar and the ATS and, and, and in the Antarctic region in general. We mentioned the UK and Argentina, long-term um, issues mm. uh, from a number of contexts from the Falkland Islands and other yes. uh, other parts of uh, the Southern Ocean, uh, Russia and Ukraine, perhaps a, a more new uh, phenomenon. Actually, not that new at this point, perhaps at least going back to 2014 or so. But from your observation, how does geopolitics enter in to the uh, discussions inside of Kamalar? Is it completely infused with geopolitics or is it something that just pops up here and there inside mm-hmm. of this organization? Uh, my sense is that it's completely infused <laughs> using your words. I think all these um, multilateral organizations these days uh, are experiencing that. Uh, the uh, the regime that was built up after the Second World War is, is under you know discussion uh, by by many members. Uh, strong players have have uh, taking a new global stage. Uh, China is one example, but also you know parts of Africa and other parts of the world that are you know uh, wants to make their voice heard, which I think is natural in a sense. Now the question is, of course, are 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 our you know governance regimes that we have built it up uh, our Antarctic treaty system for over now over sixty years can it uh, adapt to these changes uh, are we you know are we capable of doing that now a full scale war is different because that you know that's sort of out of the box and then national rules are broken so that's very very difficult to handle but these other shifts in geopolitics and shifts of economic interests and influence and so forth. Uh, that debate is going on in the Pacific Ocean. Uh, it's going on, you know, in the North American context. Uh, uh, EU, EU, UK, <laughs> and so forth. All of that, of course, spills over into these type of organizations. From my sense, I think it's present uh, all the time. I think it uh, uh, should be understood better because I think it's it's very important that these types of organizations fully understand how geopolitics is changing and how it influences uh, decision-making and consensus-making. So uh, it is infused, uh, absolutely. But as I said in the beginning of this podcast also, at the same time, it's very interesting to see how, you know, after having experienced Blamed and, and, and voiced all your concerns, and then you can see it, that there are some elements of the fishing and science that has not, you know, influenced a lot. There's still some form of, a, or there's, there's still a consensus to actually come to some form of agreement, not failing, especially in this part of the world. 
which I think is, you know, remarkable that it still exists. And there was this uh, restatement of the objectives also in the 41st meeting, which is in this report also, uh, where all the members sort of restate the objectives of the convention. So my sense is also they're very proud of that. Yes, we have difficulties. We even have war. But there's still the people that are in these meetings are very proud of these achievements. And they don't want to see it fail. They want to see it, you know, move forward, but perhaps not exactly as uh, Europe wants it or North America wants it or or UK wants it or China wants it and that that's and that's multilateralism would you say is it polarized in the sense that you have Russia and China blocking this and blocking that and the all the other countries having a consensus they want to move forward on certain issues or what what sort of polarizations and groupings is there formations of blocks either the the European perspective you mentioned European North American is there um different groupings, like in the UN, you have like the G77 plus China. How do these dynamics work within the geopolitics inside of Camelar? Mm-hmm. Well, um, I think there's, uh, there's one group of countries that have very strong interest in fishing, and I think that, that has to be <laughs> recognized. Russia, for example, is not a fishing nation for the time being. They might be in the future, but they're not fishing. Meaning that they're not fishing, they can also, you know, perhaps... Uh, uh, that can be an advantage for them in some of these discussions because they don't have anything to lose, right? But there are some members that have very strong economic interests here. Um, not only from the actual fishing, but also from the handling of the ports. There are, you know, fish are, are landed in you know, countries like Uruguay and Chile and in, in South Africa and other countries. It's tagged, it's shipped in, under catch documentation schemes, high-value uh, fish products, especially from the toothfish, and of course from the krill, but that's larger volumes. So there are many interests here uh, at stake, you know, from that whole industry, port, transport, logistics, fishing, uh, security around that as well. You know, because, again, uh, the, all the inspections and the protocols for fisheries control is done voluntarily by countries like Chile's uh, army, New Zealand, aircrafts and so forth. So they all collaborate. But so interest can be played out in very, very many different ways. And then, of course, you have a, a grouping of countries that are very strong on, in terms of environmental protection and conservation. That's one group. But it's not the same thing, say, that China are not interested in that. They're also interested in that. But they also have to weigh in other interests of, of, you know, of the value of fish for their markets and for their perhaps food security. So yes, you can you can simplify it, or you can d- dig a little bit deeper into it. Uh, but I would say at the end, the, the fishing agenda is, is is drives a lot in Camelar, uh, and likewise the idea of you know uh, the global public good of that ecosystem as a whole. Uh, is also of a strong interest because I mean this is the area where climate is regulated. Uh, this is the area where the ocean currents transport heat, nutrients, and everything to the uh, uh, you know across the globe, all the way up to North Pole. This is the area where you have very strong tourism interests, which is very important for, in particular, for the South uh, South American countries. It's a big industry and growing. So the tourism industry has to be weighed in, but also the scientific part. I mean, science is also, you know, 
it's economically very costly to go on these scientific expeditions. So there's a lot of economic and financial issues related to that as well. Who can finance these types of, of, of you know, big vessels that go for, for months into these areas and undertake the science? These strong nations can do that. Many countries cannot do that. So I, the, the idea of you know, really unpacking the interests here are, I think, important. But you can simplify and say, yes, there's one group who wants to see protection, one group who wants to see fishing. But I think that's to, sim- to, you know, to simplify too much. And science, I have a very good point there, Jakob. Science also being a geopolitical tool to some extent as well. The countries that can afford to, to launch these uh, massive expeditions, these very costly expeditions, have perhaps an advantage over those countries that cannot afford to do that. Absolutely. And, and that affects their, their, their political standing as well. Um, with India now, this is maybe a bit speculative, but with India now starting up fisheries for krill and for toothfish, do you see that as changing a large country like India? Do you see that as changing the dynamics inside of Kamalar and uh, and the way these uh, these different um, economic and geoeconomic interests play out with uh, yet another very large country uh, entering this industry? They haven't entered yet. They they are exploring uh, that. So as far as I understand, they have they have been looking into. To the to the management regime, what does what does it mean in terms of fishing notification and what are the rules and there's a lot of a lot of issues to comply to if you want to go fishing. Uh, uh, so they haven't uh, entered that that space yet, but there, there's an interest. And you know, India is a very strong and growing uh, nation, so uh, that's one way of protecting interest. But you know, in the, the Antarctic Treaty. Many of these big nations, of course, have their strong research stations on the terrestrial side, so it, it goes hand in hand. Um, so, of course, they have an interest. I, you know, it's evident. The question is when and how. And that's also why it's so important to have this, to maintain the integrity of this, these types of agreements, because they are unique. I mean, we don't have a management regime like this anywhere of the world, which is, you know, again, 10% of the... Uh, of the of the global ocean, so it's it's unique in that sense, and respected by all the members uh, at this point. And and you know any country can also enter into this agreement if they fulfil the criteria of science and or any other you know fishing interest and so forth. So if they meet the criteria, so at this meeting, the forty first meeting, Ecuador also was officially uh, adhered to uh, join the, join the convention. So they also have a, a new emerging interest into into fishing here. And that's also because many species like, you know, humpback whales and others, they migrate from the from Antarctica up along the 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 Americas, the coastlines and and, and Africa as well. So these are it's amazing to see how integrated this is. And uh, you know, we had was it 2000 humpback whales back, they were almost all extinct by the 70s. Now they I think the numbers is about 60,000. They also work as, uh, you know, beyond the value of that whale itself in our ecosystem. They also work as carbon sinks. We are learning a lot about that these days. They also manage the krill in a sense that we hadn't really understood because everybody thought that if whales were, were taking out of the ecosystem, you would have a lot of more krill. But that's not the case. <laughs> it's been stagnant. So these are things that we don't really understand. So maybe I've diverted a bit here, but the, the interests, are, they, they are so diverse and, so, and people view this region from so many different perspectives, which I think is, is you know, it's fascinating in itself. 
Oh, it certainly is. And uh, just as a way to, to wrap up now, Jakob, it's been a fascinating discussion with, with all these little diversions. That's perfect. We love that kind of stuff. So please, just maybe some short reflections on how do you look back on these two years as the chairman of Camelar? What have you learned? What prospects do you see for the future of the organization now um, going forward with Ukraine now as the as the chair country? Mm. Where do you see Camelar going in the years ahead? And how do you look back upon these two years uh, as a chairman? Mm. Well, it's been... Um Personally, I, I think it's been <laughs> extraordinary to be working on such a region. Uh, I, you know, I, I did not know that much about Antarctica uh, before, but but just to understand the, how this this region and the marine water surroundings are part of our global ecosystem, I think it's been fascinating, you know, from a, from a personal point of view. But then also adding on the importance of of this governance regime that's been in place now for 60 years in the Antarctic Treaty System with, with Camelar and, and the, the Commission uh, Convention on, on Whaling uh, and, and also, as I, as I mentioned, the Environmental Protocol, which is part of it. That we have built this, this system over so many years. It's fantastic and, I think, amazing in itself. So what I've seen, what I think is important moving forward, is to create an uh, integrate Camelar more strongly into the Antarctic Treaty system. It is part of the system, but still you have the Antarctic Treaty Consultative Meeting. Now it will take place in Finland this year, in, in the summer, in, Swedish, in, in the Nordic summer. And uh, in those meetings, Camelot typically has a report of you know two minutes or so, and here we are managing the whole marine ecosystem. So I think there needs to be uh, some form of a stronger connection or integration of Camelar into the Antarctic Treaty System as a whole, so that we start to really talk about the the the, the land system and the and the ocean system together, because these management uh, regimes that we set up, they have to be linked. And we'll here we talk about source to sea, but you can say land so land and, and ocean interactions with climate change, the melting of the glaciers, the very rapidly ecosystems uh, uh, along the coastlines in particular. We have to look upon it together. So I think a key next step should be for, for the members of the Antarctic Treaty System, and Camelar is typically the same members, it's a smaller subgroup in the, in the Camelar, to, to really bring these, these more strongly together. I think this is a very, very important point. And um, also when it comes then to deepening marine protection, that's been a key topic in, in this podcast and in, in all other debates, I think understanding the role of the marine protected areas in a broader spatial management regime is very important. It's a great tool, but it should be looked in conjunction with fisheries regulation and tourism <laughs> regulation and, and so forth. If we do that together, I think we can be, we already have a fantastic system. We can be even better. So this, that, these are two things. I mean, the stronger integration and the understanding of, the, of, the, of the, this ecosystem as a whole for us, governance is, is very, very important. When it comes to Ukraine, we were concerned if Ukraine would have been accepted as the incoming chair, but the regulations, the rules of the convention are, are very strong. So there was you know, really no measure for anybody to prevent that from happening. You never know that until you're in the meeting, but you know, that, that was our forecast and that's also what happened. They, they were approved as, as, the, as the next chair. And um, how to be um, uh, neutral and objective as a chair when you're attacked when you are in war with another member, it will be difficult. I think uh, uh, 
it must be difficult for the chair and it also will be difficult for 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 Russia as the the aggressor in this case so um we will have to see i think how that plays out but the good thing is that we have a you know have a strong secretariat and we have systems in place and you know part of the legacy under this pandemic and war years has been that the system is still there and it's robust and agreements are made and people respect them so i think that's a good setting for the next year here and hopefully we will see this war end very very soon so you know camelar uh, and 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 many other international organizations and of course the situation in ukraine will will in, improve very rapidly i think you know that you know as as an individual as a person i think it's also very hard to you know focus on camelar when you have this situation a war you know in a neighboring country to us and and feeling for these people that are uh, suffering so so much at this point so i hope that sweden and and um, other members uh, and non members can support ukraine in this task for the benefit of the region antarctic region but also of course for the benefit of the ukrainian people uh, very well said and thank you very much dr jakob granit uh, director general of the swedish agency for marine and water management really great to have your insights on uh, camelar antarctic governance global governance in general and uh, i'd love to have you back on the podcast perhaps sometime in the future even though you've passed your your antarctic uh, duties over to ukraine now i'm sure you'll have lots of observations and thoughts uh, going forward as well thank you so much eric and great to be here with this podcast